Welcome to the Deadline Podcast. I'm Christopher Howes. The cheerful Harry de Ketfield, our obituaries editor, has rather feebly taken a few days off. But we're lucky to have in the studio Christy Campbell, the historian and author of, amongst other books, Target London, under attack from the V weapons during World War II. Christy, I think the first V-1 flying bomb hit London landed exactly a week after D-Day, 1944, is that right? More or less, yes. On the morning of the 13th of June, it hit a, a railway bridge in Grove Road in East London. And uh, the, the fire engines and the ARP all turned up and thought, where is the pilot? Because oh, yes. it was a flying bomb. It was a, it was a wow. mysterious thing made in, in great secrecy in Germany at, as a revenge weapon for the RF bombing of German cities. But, of course, it wasn't secret at all because the British knew all about it from ultra-code-breaking and from brave spies and photo-reconnaissance. But there is a link to... Um, a direct link to the Churchill family and, indeed, to the Prime, Minister, the Prime Minister's daughter, whose death we sadly are recognising this week, Mary... In that first V1 attack on London, were there any casualties from that? They were very, there were there was some chickens in a farm oh, in, Kent, well, that's in that very first we one. Didn't Three, mind, the, the, it was planned as a great sort of revenge crescendo orchest- orchestrating bonanza mm. by, by, by Hitler and his, his uh, Luftwaffe chiefs. But in fact, only three took off on the very first time. And one hit a chicken coop in Kent, and one hit Grove Road. Yes, yeah, not so uh, But the, it was the casualties were so light that the government were able to say nothing had happened. Yes. So uh, the timing of D-Day was rather important. It was very important. It was very, very important indeed. Uh, D-Day, the intervention of Allied land power in France, hit uh, the place from where these weapons were launched against London. And a grand offensive had been planned for many months, if not years. A network of bases had been set up to do that very thing. And if um, the invasion had happened much later, V1s and later V2 rockets could have given that London a much greater hammering than, in fact, it took. Well, the whole thing seems to be a very uh, good fortune for the Allies. Let's have a look first at what the Grim Reapers been up to uh, supplying the obituaries pages. A household name that we lost this week was Lady Soames, Mary Soames, Churchill's last surviving child, who's died aged 91. From her grandmother, Lady Randolph Churchill, Mary Soames was said to have inherited her dark eyes and good looks, and from her father, a profound sense of public duty and a liking for cigars. Lady Soames found herself having to answer countless obscure questions about her father. One of them that she mentioned was, did Winston Churchill like spinach? Her reply was, well, my father once threw a plate of it at my mother. But I think it was her, obitu- her, her biography of her mother, Clementine Churchill, that she published in 1979 uh, that uh, made Mary Soames's name finally... She did mention in the biography that history kept on barging into their family life. She remembered how, in 1915, her six-year-old elder sister Diana was heard by her nanny to pray, Oh God, please bless the Dardanelles, whatever they are. Mary Soames spent her childhood at Chartwell, which she loved very much, and she found that she was shocked to discover that her mother 
was much less enthusiastic about the place, mainly because I think she was worried about the burden of housekeeping and, and the family's precarious finances, something that a little child wouldn't understand. Mary Soames said, I almost resented her critical and unappreciative attitude to what was, for me, a Garden of Eden. Christy, you were mentioning that there's a connection between Mary Soames and the D-Day commemoration yeah, well, that we've just been having. There, there are more, more connections than you might, might think. I, I'm so pleased you brought up the, the biography of her mother, which was indeed a fine book. And she obviously inherited some of the literary talent of her father, who people forget won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So he did, yes. He's uh, the only British Prime Minister to do so, I, I think. I'm well, I'm not. glad to hear it. Well, but, that's, uh, unless there's more coming. But I he did doubt it very much, for, don't um, you? For his history of the Second World War, yes, which contains um, a, uh, a a passage about his daughter and indeed his wife Clementine, and they are in Hyde Park in June 1944, where uh, Mary is a, um, a lowly irk in the army, ter- uh, sorry, the auxiliary territorial service, which is the Women's Army, World War Two, manning a anti-aircraft gun, and they're banging away at these horrible things coming from Normandy, coming from from northern France, the V1s. And uh, her father is in checkers, and it's a Sunday morning, and he's being driven, his his driver is going to Downing Street to pick up the post, as as you did in those days. Yes. Um, And he gets an account from the driver of both Mary and Clementine falling to the ground, taking cover when this horrible thing lands, of everybody in Downing Street falling to the ground, and the the missile itself hits the guard's chapel, where the oh, holy yes. service is in, in, in thing, and kills 120 people, and it really is a disaster, and it etches itself into the mind of the... I remember my mother talking about it with some, yes. some passion, this episode. Uh, late, quite late in the war, if you can imagine, the, the, the D-Day has happened, it looks like a victory, and suddenly uh, there's death and destruction and carnage right in the heart of London, and and um, Mary Churchill is involved. But isn't it fascinating? Um, I wondered you, who can tell, sell, is she the last child of a wartime leader to have been alive in the 21st century? I wondered that. Well, those that. last things were always very difficult to pin down. They Somebody are. else always and, turns and of course, up. She, she reminds you, having lived so long, how how remote these events are, but yet how much they are in our time. And there she was. She was, she was able to remember her, war, her wartime service when she's a young, young woman. Yes, like the Queen, I suppose. No. Like the Queen, who was also in the ATS, also in the same, that fine body of women. Well, somebody who took up one of Churchill's wheezes was obituarized in our pages this week, and that's Commander Ronald Borner. Now, he was at the sharp end of a thing called Operation Royal Marine, although... No Royal Marines were involved. Ronald Bourne has died at the age of 101, and uh, he was taking part in this thing, which was to put mines in rivers on the continent. Do you know about this, I did know about this. I think any student in the Second World War has come across this and and a big smile crosses their face because this is Churchill's week. I mean, he's back. This was a ch- Winston Wheeze, and he was when these events were unfolding, which is bef- which is early 1940, before Dunkirk. Winston S. Churchill was First Lord of the Admiralty, his political head of the Navy. Yes. And wanted every chance to get to grips with the beastly Hun. As indeed he had in 1914, he was the same same job, when he sent Royal Marines to Antwerp in, in London buses and was, uh, was, was roundly rebuked when that, that campaign ended but very badly. This was an extraordinary plan. I'm so glad this, this, uh, this has come back. Well, did it library. work? No, it didn't work. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it was very Churchillian. It was to get, uh, send the Navy 
into France in, in lorries with mines, with sea mines, and put them in rivers, basically. Yes. Hope they float, would float towards um, Berlin, presumably, or actually was designed to block the Rhine and cause economic uh, hardship to, to the German economy. Uh, the French would have none of it, um, right until the German tanks la- turned up in Paris. Hit, uh, sorry, uh, Churchill himself was worried that perhaps the people should be warned before um, uh, such, a, such an enterprise was undertaken. Mm. But as soon as uh, Hitler revealed his plans, Red and Tooth and Claw, and invaded France, indeed, the Royal Navy and this splendid man, and, and we had an admiral in charge back in London plotting progress, um, put mines uh, in the rivers and hoped they'd float their way towards the beastly enemy, and they put them in the in the Rhine, the Moselle. So I'm I sure suppose that angry. just at that time, something had to be done to show that we could still fight. Well, things were very rough, and the the unit, which the splendid man Borner, had to get out in a hurry and uh, drive to the coast. And he, I think he escaped in the Duke of Westminster's yacht or something. I read. So he did. Yes, I think he commandeered it. He did. You had to get out whichever way you could. But it's one of those uh, British pluck at its very best. In the in you know. In, at the height of jeopardy to, to come up with a scheme like that. Pretty damn good. And and Borner was also a good cricketer, and after the war he had to find a firm of accountants which would let him have Saturdays off splendid. so that he could go and play cricket. Yeah. All-round splendid man. Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're glad to write about their lives now. So Barbara Murray was somebody that was in the obituaries page this week. She was the glamour uh, for the very English film Passport to Pimlico. She's died at the age of 84. She was a rank starlet. What a strange film that is, looking at it now. Uh, one of, of course, strange things about it is it wasn't filmed in Pimlico at all, but in Lambeth. Well, so I gather from your... And I, I remember the film very well. It was, one of, it was a leading comedy in that period, post-war, into the 50s, the first uh, a, a repertory company of, of light comic comedians, good actors, of which she, yes. was, which, she, which she was one. I always thought she was rhyming slam for curry, but that was Ruby Murray. Oh, no, 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 no somebody else altogether. What about the film itself? Do you like it? I do. It's a, a, mor- it's a sort of morality tale, if you remember. It's, it's post-war London, uh, rationing, bomb sites, not mm. Pimlico, which is stucco, t- oil-painted stucco houses, not far from where we are in stately telegraph towers. That's but true. But indeed filmed in war-battered Lambeth. And you can see the dome of the Imperial War Museum in the background, if you oh, look very clear. yes, I recognise it by the railway bridge. Uh, the railway bridges. And it's, it looks pretty Dickensian, but deliberately so, because quite a lot of it was filmed on a set, I, I gather. But, really? Yes. But it, there, there's the tale, because... Uh, it's uh, a, 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 an unexploded bomb is investigated, and a mysterious document is found which claims that Pimlico is part of ancient Burgundy. Ah, yes, that's uh, very sort of topical for our EU obsessed times, and is not part of the United Kingdom at all, and therefore is not uh, subject to rationing. So there's whiskey galore, and there's meat and drink and sweets, and um, everyone has a good time until, of course, interfering officialdom has to come and shut it down. And there are all sorts of analogies for little plucky folk. But, but London, splendid stuff. Well, there we are. Some people like it and some people find it a bit uh, self-indulgent, but it's, uh, it's one of those classic English Ealing films. After this rather pointless jingle or sting, we'll be hearing from you, the readers, with the best of this week's letters. What's for dinner was the question that exercised most readers this week, or rather, the answer to that question. More of that in a minute. In the meantime, the European Union has um, received a lot of attention from readers. How can David Cameron 
achieve his declared aim of negotiating a new status for Britain, some of you asked. One consequence of being in the EU is the European Working Time Directive. And the president of the Royal College of Surgeons, Professor Norman Williams, wrote a letter saying, slavish adherence to these regulations is undermining continuity of care for patients and training in many specialties. We know that smaller hospitals particularly find it impossible to fill staff rotors, which makes delivering many surgical services unsustainable. Professor Williams said that many doctors work longer hours voluntarily to gain the skills they need and deliver the care they believe their patients require. He thought it was time for the NHS and the government to work together to sort all this out. Well, we'll see if they do. There was a fascinating letter about BBC broadcasts to Russia, and amongst the people who signed it was Vladimir Bukovsky. He was a heroic dissident who in the 1970s exposed the Soviet use of psychiatric hospitals as prisons, in effect. Another signatory was Marina Litvinenko, the widow of Alexander Litvinenko, the man who was poisoned with polonium in London. And another signatory was Oleg Gordievsky, the KGB man who worked for British intelligence and now lives in Britain. I think he lives in Britain now, yes. He was very proud, I know, of being appointed a companion of the most distinguished order of St. Michael and St. George in 2007. Actually, he's often written to the Telegraph before Oleg Gordievsky. Did you ever run into him, Christian? I, I met him in London, and yes, he's an interesting cove. Yeah, well, the world mm. of secret uh, action and spying on both sides is always a very imponderable one, but uh, no doubt it's very important. It is, but this is an interesting issue, this, uh, this idea of, of reviving, which was a Cold War, or reviving or rather boosting, I think, isn't it? It's the lack of uh, airtime. Well, this is the about. whole gravamen of the well, letter I, that, that uh, according to the letter, BBC Russian service puts out eight hours a week yes. online uh, to Russia in Russian. And it's, according to the letter, very important that the Russian interference in Ukraine, uh, having been accompanied by an unbelievable volume of propaganda, uh, the authors of the letter say, and outright lies aimed at discrediting the new Ukrainian authorities. So, I mean, I think they were just trying to G up the BBC to Well, what is the function of the BBC? This is presumably the World Service um, or, it or is. Russian Service. This is BBC Russian Service. Which is not, service. never has really been a propaganda exercise. It wasn't part no. of the Cold War structure. It was a way of advancing British culture, British values, British political freedoms around the world and has been that for many years. Propaganda is a different operation. That's I, perfectly I true. I remember going to the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, mm. and meeting young people who spoke in American accents because they'd learned their English off Radio Free Europe, which was uh, broadcast from Munich with CIA backing, yes, which was a kind of um, uh, you know American pop culture pop show, but with a political message. Right. The British have done it. They had a radio station beaming to Argentina during the Falklands uh, Malvinas crisis, yes. nearly twenty-five, nearly thirty years ago, more than thirty years ago. And of course, in World War Two, we keep coming back to the Second World War. Yeah, yes. Radio was an enormously important. Uh, cultural and prop, uh, almost military weapon in its use in, in, in um, inspiring resistance I think you movements. put your finger on something by saying that BBC World Service and foreign language broadcasts 
are not propaganda. And well, it's more British Council, isn't it? Probably, rather than, rather probably than... why people um, value them abroad. I think so. They... It's always the thing, I mean, on any kind of trust basis, it's, it's always the one that, that it gets the big tick. With the current commemorations for D-Day, a timely inquiry came in last week, as I mentioned, from Orlando Murrin of Exeter, He'd been on the track of the Mrs Minerva Rose, named after the heroine of the wartime film. The last example of this symbolic rose, he'd concluded, is in a private garden in North Germany. A British grower should bring the Mrs Minerva Rose to Britain. Well, this week we heard from Robert Maxton Graham, whose mother, Jan Struther, had written the 1939 book Mrs Minerva, on which the film was based. He joined Orlando Murrin in pleading that some British rose grower might repatriate the beautiful Mrs Miniver Rose, now said to be extinct other, in, other than in that private garden in northern Germany. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. But by far the most popular subject of the week is what your mother or grandmother said if you asked what's for dinner. An avalanche of letters landed on my desk with readers' answers. I remember my grandmother used to say bread and pull it when I asked her what was for lunch or dinner. It's a sort of play on words, and uh, it might be funny a couple of times, but I suppose she felt the same about my inquiry about what's for dinner. Christy, have you ever been told... I remember Some asking my mother what's for dinner. I've also been asked by my own children. Of it. And what do you tell them? Well, you tell them the truth. Normally, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Vesta beef curry? Um... Little's Deluxe Range, which I I mustn't do any advertising, so I swear. Oh, that's right. Um, As does Extra Special. Uh, No, I mean, we live in a world of brands and and what what sits, but I am deeply suspicious, as my mother would have been, of anything that comes in a package in a box. Mm. Sometimes I had a nice turnip or a carrot. I wouldn't get very far, but that's normally what is for dinner, actually. Turnips and carrots. Well, fresh vegetables. You have champ and boxed it. Yes, yes. But children can be pesky, can't they? They can. They can sort of, you know, rather outsmart Well, one reader, Nina Wilcox from Hellingley in East Sussex, wrote in to say, my father always cooked delicious meals for us, but when we asked him what we were going to have, he always said it was cold cabbage and lard on a shovel. Mm. She added, we were never disappointed. Hugh Clement of Bishopston in Glamorganshire wrote rather disgustingly, our nanny always said it was doll's eyes and flypapers. That's not good. (laughs) Margaret Barker of Brentwood in Essex had a rather poetic version from her mother. My mother's answer, she said, was air pie and windy pudding. A concluding remark came from Jill Pemberton from Medbourne in Leicestershire. In all the letters concerning what's for dinner, she wrote, it seems as if there's a common theme... Providing interesting meals on a daily basis can become an absolute chore. Deflecting with silly answers is a ploy to stop the question from the child. My family members never ask. Well, that's about it from my guest, Christy Campbell, and from me, Christopher Howes. Harry DeKettville will be back any day now. In the meantime, if you've got a letter for me and the letters team, write to DT Letters, all one word... That's dtletters at telegraph.co.uk. And you can follow us on Twitter, too. It's simplicity itself, just at lettersdesk. For obituaries, the Twitter contact thingy is at telegraphobits, all one word. 
All the obituaries mentioned in today's show are on our website. Until next week, this has been The Deadline. (laughs) Thank you.